0: So here's the most important question I can ask any one of you today. If the Bible's a book about salvation history to rescue God's humanity heading toward hell, are you saved? Through Jesus, you can know God. You can be reattached in that intimate,
1: personal, dynamic relationship. This is Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. On yesterday's broadcast, we began an overview of the entire Bible. This is one of our favorite messages from David, where he walks us all the way from Genesis to Revelation. You can find the full message on our website, momentsofhopechurch.org. Here's David with part two of his message, The Bible in 35 Minutes.
0: So what happened is the people of Israel in the promised land began to adopt the paganism of the godless people around them. And they would spiral into a moral abyss. They'd be captured by these people, and they would cry out to God. God would raise up a judge. The judge would bring spiritual revival. The enemy would be defeated, and they would have freedom for a season. And then they'd go through the same cycle downward, cry out to God. God would raise up another judge like Othniel, Gideon, Deborah, Samson, those are the names of some of the judges. And spiritual revival would occur and God would reign in the land for a season. But the cycle is what I call, first you abhor sin, then you endure sin, and then you embrace sin. And in the embracing, your civilization is overthrown and vanishes. You can only guess where I think America is today. Any nation that first of all abhors sin will be blessed by God. But when it starts to endure sin, then embrace sin, calling what's good evil and evil good, ultimately, God will judge that nation. And the book of Judges has as its last verse one of the most telling verses in all of the Bible. It says, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That describes America today. Everyone sets their own values. Everyone decides what they think is good and evil. Everyone eats of the fruit of that tree continually. And God's judgment will come upon a land that does that. The book of Judges ends. Then you have the book of Ruth, which is a story within the story. It it happens during the time of the Judges. Ruth is a Moabite woman. She's a Gentile, and she marries in her nation an Israelite who came to Moab. They fell in love, got married, but he dies. And so Naomi, her mother-in-law, who's Jewish, takes Ruth back to Israel. She meets a guy named Boaz. They fall in love, and they get married. And the first message of Ruth is that God loves Gentiles, that he wants Gentiles to have this relationship with him, And they should be welcomed into the nation of Israel. But it's also a beautiful story. The lineage of Boaz and Ruth, within a couple of generations thereafter, King David is born to them. And generations after that come from the lineage of King David, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The working of salvation history in the book of Ruth is evident as God oversees everything purposefully in accordance with his plan. Then come 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, and 1 and 2 Chronicles. It's the story of kings being raised up by God to oversee this special nation that he has created. There's first of all the king Saul. He was an awful king. He was a megalomaniac, and he was ultimately cast aside. Then came King David, who was a good man who sought after God's heart, and he led Israel to a powerful position of prominence in the world. Then he passed the baton off off to Solomon after his death, and Solomon continued in a glorious state. Israel reached a zenith of power and prestige like never before, although Solomon began to sow the seeds of paganism in his life and in the country as he intermarried with pagan peoples' wives and daughters for his own selfish benefit. Now, when Solomon died, there was a wrestling match for the soul of Israel. And the problem was caused by a fissure that went deep underneath the foundations of Israel, traced back to Saul and David. The 10 tribes in the northern kingdom basically felt David stole the kingship from Saul. So they didn't want anyone in the lineage of David overseeing them. Two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, wanted to follow in the Davidic realm. So there was a split after Solomon's death. The northern and the southern kingdoms. Now, you need to remember Deuteronomy 28 and 29, which was also echoed in Leviticus, by the way, of God saying, if you obey my laws, I'll bless you. If you disobey them, I'll curse you. And if you keep disobeying them, ultimately, I'll bring a nation upon you to take you away. Well, the northern kingdom did not have one good or godly king. Not one. And when the kingdom divided in the 10th century within 200 years, The northern kingdom went from abhor, endure, embrace to ultimately God's judgment. In 722 BC, the Assyrian nation, the most powerful nation on the face of the earth at that time, came and conquered the 10 tribes and took them away. They are unknown to be known where even today. They're called the 10 Lost Tribes of Israel. The southern kingdom though is different even though it began to adopt some of the pagan practices around it, it did have kings who loved God and would step to the plate and bring revival. Kings like Hezekiah and others. And because of that, the ultimate decline of the southern kingdom was retarded. But eventually, over years, they too began to disobey the moral law of God. And God brought upon them the Babylonian nation, which had overtaken the Assyrian nation some years earlier, And the Babylonians were used by God to take the southern kingdom into what's called the Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C. And the people are now in the captivity at the end of... 2 Chronicles and 2 Kings. Now people ask the question, what's the difference between 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles? Here's basically the answer. 1 and 2 Kings gives the historical account of what happened. 1 and 2 Chronicle gives God's view of what happened. So you see a lot of in- spiritual interpretations that are a part of the historical analysis of 1 and 2 Kings given through 1 and 2 Chronicles. And then as the people are in captivity, you have the historical book of Ezra which is the return of a certain number of people in the captivity in Babylon, which had now been overtaken by the Persians in 460 B.C. And Ezra, with his people, came back and introduced temple worship as God intended it to be. Then you have Nehemiah as another historical book. In 430 BC, he returns from the Persians back to the promised land, and he rebuilds the walls around Jerusalem. And then finally, Esther, an historical book, is a wonderful story of a woman who loved God with all her heart, soul, mind, and might, and was used mightily by him in the Persian Empire to help save her people who were sought to be eradicated in genocide by a man named Haman. She learned of the scheme and was able to thwart it. Now, isn't it interesting that the Jews, God's chosen, are still hated by the evil one today? And there have been repeated attempts throughout history to eliminate them from the face of the earth. You have Haman here in Esther, you have Herod in the time of Jesus, and you have Hitler some decades ago. Haman, Herod, and Hitler, where are they all now? Hell, I'm convinced. So Esther ends and the historical books end. Then there's a larger parenthesis in what's called the wisdom literature. The wisdom literature addresses several different areas, mostly about practical living. The book of Job is answering the most often asked question that people ask me, probably you too. If God is good, why is there suffering? So Job deals with that. Psalms is Israel's worship book. It deals with... Struggles of the heart, declarations of faith and hope. Uh, It deals with prophecies about the coming Messiah. Uh, But you need to remember that the Psalms from Israel's perspective were always sung, not read. They were what they had every week in their hymn book that they used to sing praises to God. The book of Proverbs addresses the two areas of wisdom and knowledge. The author's primarily Solomon, and he's trying to give us insights into those key areas, wisdom being what is God's truth, knowledge being the practical application of that truth in our lives. Ecclesiastes is a book pointing out by Solomon, the meaninglessness of life without God. It is a book that most often points to what I think is going on in America today. Song of Solomon is a love story and can be interpreted in three different ways. It's a love book about either a husband and a wife individually, Israel and God, a nation, or Jesus and his church. All three are valid interpretations of the text. All three can be rightful understandings of the book of Song of Solomon. That's the wisdom literature. Then it moves to the prophets in the Bible. Now, who were the prophets? They were men called by God to address national problems in different nations and warning them, exclamation mark, that if they continue down the path they're going, God will judge them. So you have to the Assyrian nation, Jonah and Nahum speaking God's judgment against them. To the nation of Edom, which was a neighbor of Israel, an absolute nuisance continually in Israel's life, a thorn in their flesh, God sending Obadiah to warn them. To the northern kingdom, he sends two prophets, Hosea and Amos. And to the southern kingdom and those in the captivity are the rest of the prophets in the Old Testament over and over again saying to the people don't you remember deuteronomy don't you remember leviticus if you continue down this path of disobedience god will judge you and ultimately he'll bring a nation upon you and take you into the captivity that's what the prophets are saying over and over again now what's the difference between what's called the major and the minor prophets one group of prophets aren't more important than the other the major prophets have to do with the length of the book so Daniel through, excuse me, Isaiah through Daniel are the major prophets because of the length of the book. Then the minor prophets are Hosea through Malachi because of the length of the book. And the last book Malachi, written somewhere around 410 BC, shows Israel in a very pagan state. And Malachi ends and there's no communication from God for 400 years. Between Malachi and the New Testament is 400 years of silence. It's called the intertestamental time period until God finally speaks. And how does he speak? He loves us so much. He initiates like he did with Abraham and throughout the other historical narrative with the Jews. He becomes one of us. He pursues us He becomes a baby in a manger, and he grows up and lives the perfect life we can't live because he is conceived by the Holy Spirit. And in his perfection, he goes to the cross and takes the penalty for our sin upon himself, something he didn't deserve. And then he gives us the reality of the forgiveness of our sins, something we don't deserve, so that we can be reconnected to God in spiritual life. The spiritual death problem of Genesis 3 is now overcome. We're reattached to God. We now, through Jesus, can have an intimate, personal, dynamic, living relationship with the God of the universe. And also, physical death solved. When we die, who believe in Jesus, as he was raised from the dead, we take off this earthly earth suit, and we put on the resurrection body like Jesus did, and we live forever. So physical death is solved by this Jesus who came, lived, died, and was raised from the dead we have The gospel accounts of this. The word gospel means the good news, the good news that we've been forgiven of our sins. There's the gospel of Matthew, who wrote to the Jews. There's the gospel of Mark, who wrote to the Romans. There's the gospel of Luke, who wrote to the Greeks. There's the gospel of John, who wrote to everybody in all of the world. And these authors of these books were either someone who walked with Jesus or an associate of someone who walked with Jesus and who had seen the resurrected Lord. Those were the three criteria in the early church for deciding which books were authentic or not and then we have jesus raised from the dead ascended into heaven and then his spirit is poured out upon his church and that's the book of acts the way to divide the book of acts is acts 1 8 jesus said and you shall be my witnesses first of all in jerusalem and judea to samaria and then to the ends of the earth and interestingly by the way this is so cool In Acts, the second chapter, when the Holy Spirit comes down upon the people in Jerusalem, they're gathered from all over the world, every ethnic tribe possible, and they are filled with the Holy Spirit when they believe in Jesus. So what happened with Babel in Genesis 11? God, in salvation history, reclaims in Acts 2. As people were scattered, God brings them back together through Jesus. That's the intention of the church, to come together as one. And then you see the division of the book of Acts The gospel is taken to Jerusalem and Judea in Acts 1 through 7. The gospel is taken to Samaria, Acts 8 through 12. The gospel is taken to the ends of the earth, Acts 13 through 28. And when the gospel was taken out by the apostles, churches were formed. Groups of people, the word church means the called out people of God. People who are called out of darkness and paganism who become followers of Jesus. And in their little communities of faith, they live out the kingdom of God reestablished in their hearts and among themselves. And as they always happen when churches live for a while they start to not understand right orthodoxy or right orthopraxy right doctrine and the right practice of doctrine so the apostles stayed in these churches and taught right doctrine taught right practice but after they left they would look back sometimes and see misbehavior according to wrong doctrine so what they did was they wrote letters to the churches john peter Paul, others, they wrote letters, the apostles, to the churches correcting their orthodoxy, giving them right theology, correcting their orthopraxy, giving them the right practice of right theology. And these churches to which the apostles wrote are the letters, the epistles of Romans through Revelation. They're the apostles correcting orthodoxy and orthopraxy and sprinkled throughout all of their letters and the gospels are the promise that Jesus will come back again one day. And not only is spiritual death overcome, not only is physical death overcome, that when he comes back, he will establish his message of the kingdom of God here on earth as God intended. There will now be harmony with God again. There will be harmony with others again. There will be harmony with nature again. There will be harmony with self again. As God establishes his kingdom, it will operate as he desired. More specifically, God will restore, when Jesus comes back again, Genesis 1 and 2. As you read the book of Revelation, primarily, it's a book about the promised coming of Jesus that will restore original intent in Genesis 1 and 2. As God began the world historically in Genesis 1-1, he will end the world in Revelation 22, and original intent will happen again. The kingdom of God will occur. But until that day Jesus comes back, God has formed this amazing organism called the church. The called out people of God who are to be a holy people, not adopting the pagan practices of the culture around them. And through this church and the proclamation of the kingdom of God that's prayed, first of all, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We work for the kingdom of heaven to come to earth. We fight against sex trafficking. We fight against poverty and hunger. We fight against people who don't have clean water. We want to make sure that people live under the authority of the kingdom of God. We work hard. That's our job description as Christians for the advancement of the kingdom of God, knowing it will only take place when Jesus returns. But we work hard knowing he will return. And when he returns, the kingdom of God will come to this earth. We proclaim the gospel of salvation to the world. We work hard for the needs of the poor and the oppressed. We advance the kingdom of God and the fourfold harmony we know will one day return to this earth. So here's the most important question I can ask any one of you today. If the Bible's a book about salvation history to rescue God's humanity heading toward hell. Are you saved? I I passionately ask you this day: are you saved? Do you know God through Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of your sins? If you don't, you're not saved and your trajectory is heading eternally to be without him. But through Jesus, you can know God. You can be reattached to that intimate, personal, dynamic relationship. That's why he came. Listen, use this. And anytime you're reading a Bible section, you need to look at the text in its context. And so you'll know the context of the text and it'll be able to answer a lot of questions for you. So use this for the rest of your life. This is the skeleton of the Bible. Now you need to put flesh on the bones for the rest of your life, okay? Unwrap the book.
1: You're listening to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Coming up, David joins me in the studio in a compelling conversation about resolving conflict in our personal relationships. We'll be right back.
2: Hi, I'm Tony Marciano, President and CEO of Charlotte Rescue Mission. Let me ask you a question. What do you do when you stand at the intersection of homelessness and addiction? Let me put you in that person's shoes for just a second. What is it that you really need? You've probably been one of the individuals who stood at the end of the interstate ramp holding a sign that said, Hungry, will work for food. But you never used the money for food. You bought booze and drugs with it. Most likely, you hate your life. Your addiction has stolen every aspect of hope. You want to be part of the fabric of society, but every morning your addiction screams and you surrender to it. There is one thing you do need, and that is transformation. The place to go is Charlotte Rescue Mission. Charlotte Rescue Mission works from the inside out to address the root cause of someone at the crossroads of addiction and homelessness. The Rescue Mission provides free, Christian, residential, high quality substance abuse recovery programs to members of our community who otherwise would not be able to afford such services. With a passion for holistic transformation and a love for Christ, the mission's 120-day program has transformed the lives of thousands of men and women in our community. Charlotte Rescue Mission is grateful for the financial partnership of Moments of Hope Church.
1: Thanks for listening to Moments of Hope. I'm Jen Houston and with me is our pastor, David Chadwick. David, thanks for joining us today. You're
0: welcome, Jen, great to be with you
1: in this morning's moment of hope you wrote about resolving conflict in our personal relationships and this sounds like practical advice that all of us could use yeah
0: it's relationships 101 here yeah. uh, because we live in community together God made us to be interdependent with one another it's not good for man to be alone God said in the original creation narrative so since we're going to live with one another since we're going to be living in community closely with one another and since since we're all fallen, selfish people at some level or another, we're going to bump into each other. We are going to have conflict. It is a natural part of our existence. So when, not if, we have conflict with other people, what should we do? What should be our first inclination to to do. And I think that's immediately go to that person, speak to that person face to face, and try to resolve the conflict ASAP. Scripture clearly teaches it. In fact, it's directly from the lips of Jesus himself. In Matthew 18, 15, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Mm. Jen, may I say that again? Yes. Just between the two of you. So, when the Prince of Peace tells us specifically how to handle conflict, I think it's something all of us should take deeply to heart. Jesus wants us to address the conflict head on. Have some courage, folks. Mm-hmm. He's teaching us how to prevent gossip from ever starting. Go to the person not to someone else to talk about that person Go to the person. That includes writing a text, go to the person. Not email, go to the person. Don't do anything else except go to that person immediately. Don't hold it inside yourself. That will only lead to more and more bitterness. Say what you need to say, but do it face to face. Now, of course, examine your own heart before you go. Look at any pride or arrogance or defensiveness you may have. Rid yourself of that, but after you do so, Go to the person, and remember, if it's something that can be easily forgiven, you do have the option of simply stepping over the offense. Hmm. That is something that's good that can be done. Learning to forgive and forget preserves friendships and keeps them on solid grounds. But if you can't let it go, Go ahead and face the conflict. Go straight to that person. It's what Jesus commanded, and he alone is the Lord of the universe. Plus, he wants us to live in love, in community with one another.
1: This is so good and so practical, even for people who aren't believers. It's almost like a secret key to success. And my husband is the head of HR, senior vice president of HR at his company, and he tells people to do this all the time. Have you gone to the person yet before involving HR? are. And most often, conflicts are resolved if they go to the person. That's a
0: great point, Jen, because we often forget that God's truth is God's truth. Mm -hmm. And it's applicable not only for believers, but also for unbelievers, because it's just true. And if you can go to that person and resolve the conflict immediately, you've solved a multitude of problems, not the least of which is gossiping to other people and causing the problem to go outward and the infection to increase even more so among others.
1: This is such great encouragement for us today. Thank you so much, David. Thank
0: you, Jen. And if any of you would like to receive a written Moment of Hope from me daily at 7 a.m., go to momentsofhopechurch.org. You can subscribe. there free of charge from my heart to yours just simply to begin your day with a Moment of Hope.
1: This has been Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Senior Pastor of Moments of Hope Church. We'd love to have you join us for worship this Sunday morning. We meet at Providence Day School, located at 5800 Sardis Road in South Charlotte at 10 a.m. You can find more information on our website, momentsofhopechurch.org. And while you're online, be sure to sign up for David's daily Moments of Hope, delivered every morning to your inbox. And also, check out David's HopeCast, They're both free and available at momentsofhopechurch.org. For David and the entire Moments of Hope Church staff, this is Jen Houston asking you to pray for unity in our nation.